1 Corinthians chapter 11, open up your Bibles. We all understand that if you set a thousand monkeys in front of a thousand typewriters for a thousand years, you may get a lot of paper, but you'll never get a Hamlet. You'll never get a a masterpiece, a work of art, uh, some great literary accomplishment. We sort of understand that innately, and that Shakespeare can sit down and write Hamlet in one uh, in, in one setting in his first try and come up with something that demonstrates his amazing capabilities, his amazing intellect, uh, his, his genius, if you will. Well, we understand that you can take a thousand beavers and have them build a thousand dams on a thousand rivers, and for all that construction and energy, they'll never build a Hoover Dam. And yet we go and we marvel at that kind of creation and we think about the engineers and the people who put that together and we recognize the amount of intelligence and sophistication and design that have gone into that because we, we understand that there's a correlation between a, a thing which is created and the creator. We understand that there's a correlation between the intelligence and the sophistication and the magnificence of a designer And the thing which they design. We understand those things innately. And yet when it comes to the design of men and women. The design within the home. The design within the church. When it comes to the way in which men and women function. People have seemingly concluded that the master designer who is God has somehow made a mistake. That somehow what we read about on the pages of Scripture, what we understand from God's Word about our roles as husbands and wives, our roles as men and women in the church, is somehow a corruption. In fact, some people would suggest even that, that what we experience in the roles of men and women is, it, it must be the byproduct of the fall of man. It must be something sinful, or it is something that just needs to be adapted as we move through time. It has to be something that we constantly are modifying as the culture and society around us is changing. But what we can't do is simply open up the Bible and take what it says about men and women for face value. That's exactly what Paul wants us to do. He wants us to take what God's Word says about men and women and to maintain it To keep it because it is the master design. And there's no better design, there's no better creation, there's no better paradigm that you or I or anyone else could ever invent that could be more magnificent, more beautiful, more of a demonstration of God's mind and God's perfection and God's beauty and God's glory than what God designed for husbands and wives, for men and women even in the church. Now that's what we've been looking at in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, this extensive discussion that Paul gives to the design of of God for the roles of men and women in the church. Unless you think that somehow the 
conundrums that we face today and all the wrangling about what women ought to be able to do and what roles ought to be allowable and all that, unless you think that somehow that's a byproduct of modern society and the advances in education and industrialization, lest you think that this is just somehow a recent discussion, we open up the pages of Scripture and what we find is there were raging, even in the days of the early church, these, these debates, these discussions about what kind of function, what kind of things women should be allowed to do within the church. And there was apparently, even in the church at Corinth, this raging debate, and they had written to Paul, or Paul had heard about it, or something, and he's writing to address that particular issue. Now, as I said last week, unfortunately, we don't have all the historical details of the specific situation. I couldn't tell you right now exactly uh, with crystal clarity what the women were wanting to do at Corinth, or how it was being manifest, or even what the expectations were culturally around them. But one thing, as we read through the passage, becomes very clear, that, God, that Paul wants us to understand. God has created men and women differently. And as part of that difference, he's given us different roles, different purposes, different tasks, and it's our job to embrace that. To understand it's not detrimental to either men or to women. In fact, maintaining those differences is the key to our own blessing and to glorifying God in the greatest degree. Now, that's really what this is all about. And we have been looking at it now for a couple of weeks. We started out by talking about these these five fundamental reasons that Paul gives us in this passage for maintaining these gender distinctions. The first one you remember in verse 3 was the divine pattern for these roles. And Paul basically says, look, what we do when we maintain our distinction in roles, we reflect who God is. Because as he says here, I want you to understand the head of every man is Christ, the head of every uh, of every excuse me, head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. What he's saying is there was there is a pattern in the Godhead, in who God is, between God the Father and God the Son, a pattern of authority and submission. There is a distinction in the roles that they play, even within the perfection of the Godhead. And so to the extent that we reflect that in our complementary relationships, we reflect God and we glorify God by doing that and bring great blessing on ourselves. That led naturally to the second sort of fundamental reason that he takes us to in verses 4 and 5, which is the disgrace of defying that, the disgrace of defying the roles. He draws on this conclusion of God's character immediately to speak about the, uh, the Corinthian situation. Particularly, he addresses the issue of their wardrobe, that is, these head coverings, but he's He's really speaking not about their wardrobe, but from their wardrobe about their roles. He's kind of addressing the the issue, but he's getting behind the issue to what is the main fundamental cause of the disruption in their church. And what he's teaching in verses 4 and 5 is that a man can dishonor his head. That is to say, out of verse 3, the head of every man is Christ. He can dishonor Christ by disregarding his role within the church. 
And a woman likewise can dishonor her head. That is to say she can dishonor either her husband or she can dishonor the role that God has given to men in the church when she disregards the role that God has given her. When she tries to take on roles that were intended by God for men or tries to take up those those positions. And in this particular situation, it's obvious from verses 4 and 5, the women were trying to take on a role of leading the church in prayer and in prophecy. They hadn't necessarily asked for the right to to be a, a teacher or maybe an elder, but they were trying to take on these leadership roles. And Paul says that shouldn't be. It's, it's a disgrace to you and to God, to you and to your head. When you allow that to happen. Now he he extends that image. In verse 5. Saying look if a woman. Will not cover. If a wife will not cover her head. Then she should cut off her hair. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair. Or to shave her head. Let her cover her head. So he's sort of taking this now beyond just the wardrobe issue and he's expanding it or extending it and really giving us a third fundamental reason for maintaining gender distinctions within the church and that is the distinctions from nature. The distinctions from nature. He appeals essentially to their own judgment. He assumes that they will recognize and you and I will recognize that there's a boundary that shouldn't be crossed. That there's a, there's a certain expectation that's out there. He assumes that we would understand this innately within ourselves. Something that God puts within our conscience maybe. That understands this distinction and feels a shame when that boundary is crossed. When it isn't maintained between men and women. When society's expectations maybe sometimes are violated. Or when people attempt to abandon them. Paul suggesting that you suffer your own demise. And so he's appealing to their sense of that in these verses. Now while we can't reconstruct completely the cultural situation in Corinth. It seems pretty obvious that Paul wants these women to be sensitive to the cultural clues Regarding femininity. The cultural clues regarding femininity. He wants them to be aware that every society, every society has always had distinctions between men and women. In the way that you dress, in the way that you wear your hair, in the way that you do all these things. There's always been distinctions. And Paul's urging you to understand that urging you to abide by that and urging you to understand that there is inevitable disgrace that awaits you if you revolt against that because what you're doing is you're revolting against God. Now you might think as you read what Paul's saying here, he's just kind of leaving it up in a very relative way to you and to the cultural dictates, whatever whatever the culture dictates around you, that somehow this is completely relative. And so as time and culture change and time and culture changes its expectation on men and women, 
that we as a church, we as families, we as Christians should adapt and, and change our expectations regarding men and women. In other words, if it's more acceptable for men to wear their hair like women or, or men to cover their heads or men to take on roles of, of femininity or if it's more acceptable for women even, as Paul says here, to shave their heads then that's simply a cultural dictate. We should just embrace that, right? Well, Paul doesn't leave it simply to the realm of cultural convention. He will return down in verse 13 to this issue of nature, of boundaries that are built into who we are. And he'll ask them again in verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper... For a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? Paul's appeal now is not just a cultural convention, it's to nature. He says nature teaches you this. He's confident that if you'll take time to consider, you'll see it. There are physiological differences in nature between men and women that indicate the distinctions between us. And he's referring specifically here to their hair, the growth of their hair, or we might say the lack of growth. Because one very obvious and distinct difference between men and women is in our hair follicles. Did you know that by the age 35, Two-thirds of men will experience what is known as androgenetic alopecia. That's just a fancy word for male pattern baldness. Two-thirds. In fact, uh, some people uh, have suggested in recent studies that one quarter of men or young men experience that from puberty. And that by age 50, 85% of men will experience androgenetic alopecia, that is male pattern baldness. It's, it accounts for 95% of the hair loss in men and is basically triggered by a hormone known as DHT, dehydrotestosterone, obviously found in men in much greater capacity than women. It's the primary cause of their hair loss. And ironically, it is the same hormone that has been linked to the growth of facial hair. And so it is just a part of the biological makeup of who we are that that men experience hair loss in a much greater capacity, in a much accelerated way than women. God has given, in other words, hair to women. And He's given it to them in general in longevity. Some people have even speculated that this DHT, this dehydrotestosterone, actually affects the, the, the hair growth, the the pattern of hair growth that takes place in men so that men literally in all equal circumstances have hair that grows slower than women. In other words, Paul wants you to understand, just look around you. Look around you. Notice that God has biologically given hair to women. This is exactly what Paul says in verse 15. If a woman has long hair, it's her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. God gave it. God designed it that way. 
And so it's no surprise that societies have conformed to these physiological laws of nature through time. They have identified hair as a distinctly feminine trait and quality. The hair of a woman has been seen to highlight her nature. In fact, throughout the world, throughout time, women have worn their hair longer and men have worn their hair shorter, and it's not coincidental. That's his point. So he's saying that God has done this. God has designed women to have hair. God has designed uh, men to have less hair, or at least not as much hair, shorter hair. And he's done it for covering, for her glory. Allowing women to make their hair, set their hair, use their hair for purposes of personal uh, uh, beautification. Now someone is inevitably going to think about that and say, wait a second. Didn't God uh, provide a way for men to have long hair in the vow of a Nazarite, right? Go back and read Numbers chapter 6, and what you find out is that there's this this vow within Old Testament law which allows the guy to grow his hair out, and at the same time, by the way, he's not supposed to have any wine and not touch any dead things, which by extension means he doesn't eat any meat, That was the Nazarite vow, basically took up those three things. Well, it's true, that vow is in there, but what you have to understand is that was a temporary condition. As a matter of fact, Jewish literature indicates that usually a Nazarite vow was taken for the span of about 30 days. That was what was typical. It's typical because it was often associated with mourning or fasting, as you might imagine, you're abstaining from, from alcoholic beverages, you're abstaining from wine, which was the primary drink in those days, you're abstaining from meat. And so it was associated with mourning and with fasting. And so people would separate themselves, and that's why right there in Numbers chapter 6, there is given not only the stipulations of the vow, but the very clear stipulations on the ceremonial uh, removal or ceremonial release from that vow. You would bring sacrifices to get out of it. And so people would follow this vow for a brief period of time for whatever purposes, and then they would be released from the vow. As a matter of fact, it's called a vow of separation because people who took this Nazarite vow, what they were doing was essentially separating themselves from society. And as an indication, an outward indication of that was the fact that they didn't cut their hair. In other words, the the exception proves the rule. The very fact that this was a vow indicates it wasn't common for men to wear their hair long. It never has been. It's always been a part of God's design. It's always been reflected within our societies and culture. That's Paul's point. That's his point. So he says, just think about the way God has made us. He's made us different. And one of the things he's done is he has designed women with hair. And by extension, he's designed them to look differently. He's designed them to not only have different hairstyles, he's designed them to dress differently. He's designed them, in other words, to embrace those things which are distinctly feminine. Someone asked me at the break, well, How short is too short for a woman's hair? It's really not the point. The point is femininity. 
The point is the fact that you rejoice in the fact that God has made you the way you are. You rejoice and you embrace the distinctions that God has made. You embrace femininity and that which is feminine you embrace. It's not a matter of hair length. It's a matter of it's a matter of wanting to comply, wanting to rejoice in, wanting to demonstrate the distinctions which God has made. Some women wear their hair in a much more cropped fashion, but do it with tremendous loveliness and 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 the delicacy of femininity. They do it rejoicing in the way that God has made them, and that is the point. We should, in other words, what Paul wants us to see, we ought to be sensitive, lest we ever do things which would push the boundaries of confusion between men and women, which would push the boundaries, the distinctions that God has built into us. God desires us to have those. We ought to rejoice in His wisdom. There's a fourth and a fourth fundamental reason that Paul gives here that sort of goes along with that. It's not just the observable nature and the physiological differences around us. But he says in verse 7, there's also the design of the, of the Creator. And this goes beyond our physiological differences to the original creation. Man, he says in verse 7, ought not to cover his head since he's the image and glory of God, but a woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Now this is, this is just out of hand, admittedly offensive to people. That they're offended by the suggestion that one person or one gender was created for another, but there's no way around it. This is exactly what Paul is trying to teach us. And if you study the Bible and you study the issue of gender, what you find is that arguments about gender distinctions in the New Testament all inevitably go back to the same source, which is the original creation. We might suggest that somehow uh, role distinctions are just the byproduct of of human sinfulness and the tendency of men to want to be chauvinistic and abusive or whatever it might be, or the suppressive uh, rules of society that have tried to keep women down, but that is not the case. As a matter of fact, the Bible teaches us that these distinctions aren't a product simply of contemporary culture. They may be abused and they may be distorted in culture, but the distinctions were built into the fabric of humanity before sin ever entered the world. They were built into it by God. He he made us this way. And Paul is doing this. You'll see it in the biblical writers. They don't appeal to their own mere social convention or even to Roman law, though Paul may have some of that in this text. But ultimately, all of these things, even our dress and, and all of these, he sees them as the byproducts of God's created order. And he wants us to understand that the principles he's teaching us transcend culture and geography and time. And they go all the way back to the original creation. This is the way God made us. Man was not made from woman, but woman from man. That is simply a reference to the fact that within the garden, God created man out of the dust of the earth. 
And then a little bit later, he created woman, not from the dust of the earth, not on equal, equal footing in that sense, but he created woman from man. He took a rib, we're told, out of the side of man, and from that rib, just like he fashioned man from the dust of the earth, he fashioned a woman from that rib. And so this isn't just an issue of chronological order. This wasn't an issue just simply of man being created first and woman being created second. He's saying there was embedded, even in the way God created us, there was embedded this message of purpose. Woman was created for man. Dia, the word that Paul uses here, it's a reference to Genesis 2.18, where God created woman as, quote, a helper fit for man. In other words, man constituted the reason for the creation of woman. Man constituted the reason. Not in total, but at least in part. John Ganong writes that God created woman as the helper rather than the initiator, yet equal and supplying perfectly the man's social and affectional Needs And this was the fundamental paradigm designed by God. It wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't an adjustment. It wasn't a modification for some design flaw that God inadvertently overlooked in, in the creation of mankind. Genesis 2.18 teaches us that woman is designed and given to man as a partner and as a helper for his tasks. He's not, in other words, just some sort of passive dependent who is there simply as a recipient of whatever graces the man may decide to bestow on her. She is given as a distinct helper in the tasks which have been entrusted to him. That is to say, she is paired with the same goals for which he is striving the same measure that he's reaching for, she is a part of that, not as the initiator, but as the helper. Ray Ortland clarifies this point. He says, quote, God calls the man with the counsel and help of woman to see the male-female partnership serves the purposes of God, not the sinful urges of either member or of the partnership, end quote. In other words, God has given a task, a single task, but he's given it to a team. He's given it to a team. So according to God's design, women were given as a way of refining and extending the leadership of the men who are over them. There are strengths and insights that women bring to relationships that are not brought by men. Mature women bring nurturing Strengths, they bring wisdom, they bring uh, uh, security, they bring solitude at points. They do all these things and, break, and make efforts richer and stronger by, on, the, on the part of men. John Piper writes this, he says, quote, Mature femininity feels natural and glad to accept the strength and leadership of a worthy man. A mature woman is glad when a respectful, caring, upright man offers sensitive strength and provides a pattern of appropriate initiative in their relationship. She does not want to reverse these roles. She's glad when he is not passive. 
She feels herself enhanced and honored and even freed by his caring strength and servant leadership. In other words, whenever a man is operating in the role that God has given a man, it provides a sort of, a, a sort of environment, a greenhouse, if you will, where a woman actually flourishes in her strengths and in her freedoms. Solomon spoke of it this way in Proverbs. He says, an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. What he's saying there is exactly what Paul's saying here. She glorifies him. This is ultimately what Paul's saying. A man ought not to cover his head. That is to say, he ought to maintain the distinction in the roles that he has, whether it's in his headdress, his wardrobe, or whatever duties he has. Since, verse 7 says, he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Meaning of the word glory, pretty basic. It means to radiate out something. It means to shine forth. It means splendor, brightness. And so what Paul is saying here is man is to brighten or promote or bring attention to God's person and God's work. He is to radiate out who God is on the earth. Likewise, Woman is designed to brighten or promote the same person or work, but she's to do it through man. What are you saying? She's a partner and a helper for man. In marriage, obviously, entrusted by God with the work that they have among their family and in their home. But even in the church, in the roles that God has entrusted to men and women, distinct though they are, women come alongside to help men in the task of radiating out God's glory. If you have your Bibles, look with me for a second over at Proverbs 31, because it speaks of the, of the same thing. It describes it in a different way, but it It's basically laying out the same principle. Proverbs 31, as you may know, describes in detail a noble woman, an excellent woman. And he's spelling it out here. As a matter of fact, it's it's the only portion that that, that, uh, I know of that really come from the lips of a woman. It's given to us by the mother of King Lemuel, we're told in Proverbs 31, 1, and then Lemuel either writes them himself or passes them along to Solomon who writes them down. But here are these, this description of this excellent woman comes from the lips of an excellent woman herself. And this is what she ultimately says in verse 23, the final third stanza of this great poem on femininity. She speaks about the role of this woman when she says, her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Now, the setting here is in a Jewish city, which would have been surrounded by walls, obviously, for the sake of protection. And as you moved around that city, there would be variously set these gate houses. They weren't just doors. They were structures and buildings in and of themselves, sometimes where the strangers and, lo- uh, and, and aliens and people passing through would be lodged. Sometimes they would put soldiers there. Sometimes they would use these massive houses for storage for purposes in the city. But this is also the sort of city hall 
they would go to the biggest of these gates, the main gate, and this is where they would gather together the respected leaders, the elders of the city, and it became the sort of political center or the court system of the land. They would they would administer judgments. They would deal with matters of public welfare. They would adjudicate legal decisions here. And it's in this place where the husband of this excellent woman is known. The, 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 that, that appearance that the writer's talking about is really a statement about his importance, his influence, his contribution to public life and society. And the writer attributes his station in life to the role of this woman. Now, obviously, you could have a lady who is all the things described in Proverbs 31, and yet she is married to a husband who doesn't live up to this model. You could have a woman who is excellent in all these ways, and yet she has a husband who doesn't abide by the principles and the wisdom, even in the book of Proverbs, much less the rest of Scripture. But the point is not that her life guarantees a husband of influence. The point is that her life allows for it. Or another way to say it is he would never be there were it not for her. A woman like this is necessary to have a man with this kind of godly influence. In other words, not every excellent wife will have a husband who sits in the gate, but every godly husband who sits in the gate will have an excellent wife who paves the way for him. Modern proverb says it this way, generally men, when a man climbs the ladder of success, his wife is holding the ladder. When you climb the spiritual ladder, the place of influence in society, if you're going there, it's because your wife is providing the pathway. It's because she is facilitating that. It's because she has come alongside in her role and she, together with you in a partnership, is radiating out to the glory of God the tasks which have been entrusted to you both mutually. There are, of course, those who rise because of deceit, because of manipulation, because of injustice. But for a godly man to handle all the priorities of his life, And to be able to conduct himself in a way that spans influence beyond his own personal uh, interest. He has to have a godly wife who comes alongside of him and provides that kind of support. So this is Paul's point. Back over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Woman was given to man for this purpose. She was given to man To glorify him in his role of glorifying God. And for this reason, Paul says, a woman ought to have, some versions say, a symbol of authority on her head. Some versions just simply say authority over her. Most translations provide the symbol, the word symbol. It's probably in italics or your marginal notes may indicate the word is not in the Greek. 
it is a translator's preference to stick it in there because they assume that what Paul's referring to here is the wardrobe, that women ought to have something in their wardrobe that testifies to this design by God by her outward dress or at least her outward actions. That's possible. It certainly is is supported in the passage, but I tend to think it would be better to read it as Paul wrote it. A woman ought to have authority over her. She ought to have authority on her head, in other words. She ought to have someone that she is coming alongside of and supporting, whether it's a husband within a marriage or within the structure of the church. She ought to be seeing her role, embracing her role role gladly or coming alongside of the men that God has has entrusted with the leadership of the church. In doing that, she embraces the wise design of her maker and submits to the role he's given her. Paul says this is the case, if for no other reason, because of the angels. That's what he says there. The end of verse 10, you do this because of the angels. So what does that have to do with it? Well, the angels... They're they're sort of the perfect example of exactly what Paul's talking about. They are, without uh, without question and throughout Scripture, defined as the perfect example of majesty and beauty, and along with that, power and wisdom. They're creatures who who are designed by God to fulfill God's purposes, but within a role of subordination. They're servants to the saints and submissive to God. They come alongside as ministering servants, Hebrews tells us, to us in our tasks, which the Lord has given to us. It is the angels who usurped that role, who brought disgrace upon themselves and dishonor to God. John MacArthur says, Paul is here speaking of the holy angels. God's ministering angels, whose supreme characteristic is total and immediate obedience to God. Throughout Scripture, God's holy angels are shown as creatures of great power, but it's always derived power and submissive power. Satan and the other angels who followed him were thrown out of heaven for the very reason that they sought to use their power to their own selfish purpose and glory rather than according to God's design. The angels, on the other hand, are the supreme example of properly proper creaturely subordination, end quote. That's what Paul's saying. He wants you to understand God's design. This isn't some fanciful notion of men or culture or times or whatever. This is the perfect, distinct, beautiful, effective, Glorious design of the maker. Now with that, he gives a final clarification, a fifth fundamental reason for embracing these distinctions and genders in verses 11 and 12, and that is the dependence of the sexes. The dependence of the sexes. He's saying, in other words, that men and women stand in an interdependent relationship. And just... He has to add this just so people don't misconstrue or abuse what he's been saying here. He says in verse 11, Nevertheless, in the Lord, 
woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. And all things are from God. Paul, like Peter, wanted you to avoid ever twisting or misunderstanding what he's saying. That whereas at the beginning, God might have brought honor to the man by forming out of his side woman, ever since then, not only every man, but every part of mankind has been formed out of woman. He did this in order to bring the proper balance and the same kind of balance that you see in biblical teaching. You'll find, for example, 1 Peter, when he exhorts wives to submit to their husbands, he immediately turns around and says, Husbands, you also have a responsibility to understand your wife and to treat her as an equal co-heir in the grace of life. That is to say, they're fellow creatures of God, equally endowed by God with honor, with purpose, and with dignity, and ought to be treated that way, in every way. So like all biblical writers, Paul saw no contradiction here between the idea of a woman's equal importance and her role of subordination, and he wants to emphasize that here. Women may be different in function, But there is no difference in their importance or their spirituality. Men and women, in other words, are complementary. Man's proper authority doesn't make him independent. And woman's subordination doesn't make her necessarily dependent on man. She serves in glorifying him, but she serves God in her role. And all of her sufficiency comes from him. And so, as man was made, as woman was made from man, so man, uh, man is now born of woman. He is alluding to or saying, essentially, that God has given this unique, honorable station in life to women. And that station is motherhood. In other words, if you desire a uh, if you desire a position and a place to shape the world and to influence people for godliness and spirituality, don't seek a pulpit. Seek motherhood. Because this is what he's saying. Desire this. This is the place that God has given. Mothers have a greater influence on young lives than any teacher or leader could ever have. You, you have the opportunity to build within your children the character which will cause them, like arrows flying through the sky, to launch out into the world and to make their mark based on what you've poured into them. Seeing you on your knees every day will teach them the importance of faith and trust in relationship with God, observing your purity in in your life, how you guard and protect your heart, all of these things. Paul realizes, as any legitimate husband realizes, that women spend far, far more time with their children than do husbands and fathers. G. Campbell Morgan had four sons. Every one of them became preachers. And so someone asked him one time at a meeting, 
which of the Morgans is the greatest preacher? He said, without hesitation, their mother. You have to be, right? You raise up that kind of heritage, you produce that kind of seed. He knew it wasn't him. He knew where it came from. This is the same sort of thing Paul teaches over in 1 Timothy 2. When he confronts the notion that has sometimes been proposed, that because Eve was deceived in the garden, that somehow there is this ongoing dishonor for women. He says that's not the case. Women, he says, are saved. They're preserved from dishonor by God in the sense that they bear children. He says in 1 Timothy 2.15. If, he says, in other words, it's not just the mere fact of having children. It's the fact that you have them and you continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. In other words, as you, as a mother, together with your children all the time, calmly demonstrate faith and trust of God in the face of circumstances and challenges and threats, or as you display love and kindness, even when you're treated unkindly, or when you maintain holiness by the kind of things you spend your time on, or the kind of things you read, or the kind of conversations you enter, or the kind of relationships that you keep, or as you demonstrate even self-control, which in the original uh, language speaks about something to do with your mind, controlling your mind against unrealistic fears on one hand and unrealistic fantasies on the other. As your children observe you, he says, you maintain, you achieve, you earn a place of honor that is unmatched in all of human society. God has built it that way. And we as husbands realize it. We don't don't abdicate our role as husbands and fathers, but we recognize that the one who leaves their stamp on our children more than anyone else is not us. It's our wives. Now Paul says in verse 16, after he sort of lays out the whole case, he says, look, if anyone is inclined to be contentious, just know this, we have no such practice nor do the churches of God. In other words, look, if you want to reinvent the way that men and women are to operate in the church or in the home, you just need to realize you're doing it apart from the tradition of the apostolic church and apart from the teaching of God's word. You may launch out, you may brand some new form of Christianity. You may you may establish some new rules of engagement between husbands and wives, between men and women in the church. But you're going to do that, you're going to have to do it without biblical support. Because if you open up the pages of scripture and if you are bound by the wisdom of God and not your own. If you believe that God's word is inspired and has been given to us without any error, If you think that God is wise and perfect, and if you think that he displays his wisdom and perfection in creation, if you believe that he doesn't make mistakes, then you're going to have to accept God's created order. You're going to have to embrace it. You're going to have to rejoice in it. You're going to have to understand it wasn't given for your detriment, but for your blessing and ultimately for his glory.
Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we understand that these are difficult subjects for so many because they have been sometimes the object of abuse or they have observed in their own homes, in the marriages of their parents, in the society around them, sinful tendencies, abusive men, discontent women. Lord, I pray that we would set aside all of those things and train our thoughts and hearts back to your word. We trust you, Lord. We know that you are good. And we know that you give us good things. We know your design is perfect. We know that your plan is majestic. We know that you, of all people, know how to bring glory to yourself. So I pray, Lord, that you would not only give us a biblical understanding, but surround us with godly examples. Help us to look into the marriages and the lives of those who abide by this plan and see the blessing lived out. Help us, Lord, even to see within the church those men who stand up and take leadership, those women who come alongside and bring their gifts, and how all of that results in the praise and honor and glory to you and blessing for us. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.